You're listening to the Pre-Health Spotlight Podcast with Garrett Lay, Amon Rahman, and Ritwan Bandio-Padier. Hi there, everybody. I hope everyone is doing well. I know our semester's been a little bit weird, but I hope everyone's doing well and everyone's happy amongst these uncertain times. The date is August 22nd, 2020, when we are recording this. It is episode 7 of the Pre-Health Spotlight podcast, and today we are going to talk about coronavirus in college. So as everybody knows and understands, uh, we've been in quarantine since March, and um, as things stand, we currently find ourselves in a very pivotal moment in the coronavirus pandemic. Earlier in the summer, shops, malls, and other establishments have opened up. And as things stand, these establishments have been largely able to conduct business by mandating masks, enforcing social distancing, washing hands, and limiting capacity amongst other measures. Just the other day, uh, the three of us, along with one of our other roommates, Eric, we were in Ross Park Mall, and uh, things are very different than they were before, but it seems like, you know, it's still able to conduct business, and I think that's a positive. So... In the grand scheme of things, this uh, is a small win in what has otherwise been a very sad, frustrating, and unprecedented time in our country. In terms of the virus, mortality rates have actually fallen from an approximate 1% in March to 0.05% now in August. And this could be attributed to a variety of things. For example, one could um, probably factually um, state that we have fallen below the curve in the sense that people who are symptomatic for COVID-19, can now receive treatment. We have much more information on the virus in terms of how it works, in terms of its epidemiology, and of course how to treat it. And there have been some changes to you know, the head-scratching and dangerous nursing home plans that put a lot of older at-risk patients uh, in trouble. And uh, I'm sure there were many other factors that have contributed to that, but the fact of the matter is there has been progress in that area. However, cases continue to rise in America. The virus still very clearly looms as a threat, and uh, we're now at the next step of what has been a long, long battle for everybody against the coronavirus. Colleges are reopening and students are moving in. Now, this presents a lot of different challenges for the clear reason that young people, as everyone knows, are not as affected by the coronavirus as other populations. As a result, this could lead to possible apathy towards the virus, potentially a lack of understanding towards the risks that it actually poses. And colleges have a great deal of students. They tend to be a very dense populace. And all of these things present a very severe challenges for educational institutions. As things stand, it is still early, but the results appear to have been abysmal. Due to rises in cases, as well as actions happening at other universities around the country, Michigan State, for example, has um, completely canceled on-campus housing. This has affected 15,000 students, and it was done due to spikes seen in other schools. At our own school, the University of Pittsburgh, five Greek life chapters, Chi Omega, Kappa Delta, Pi Kappa Alpha, Alpha Tau Omega, and Sigma Phi Epsilon, were placed on interim suspension of registration on Wednesday, Uh, for violating the university's health and safety guidelines, the student code of conduct, and the fraternity and sorority guidelines. And that's according to university spokesperson Kevin Zwick. Purdue. 36 Purdue students have been suspended for breaking social distancing rules. The University of North Carolina, which has really gripped the country in terms of 
how severe and shocking the amount of partying and gathering has been, they've had to kick students off campus and say, you cannot come back. And we've seen, we've all seen the videos where there's hundreds of people, whether it's at North Carolina or even Penn State, um, just really, really partying in droves and uh, clearly not social distancing or following those health guidelines. At Virginia Tech, seven students were suspended for similar actions. At the University of Notre Dame, they had to suspend in-person classes days into the semester as there were 336 new coronavirus cases. One could argue that in terms of college students, the number of cases from both a symptomatic and asymptomatic standpoint is well below that of the general population. That is a positive. It is also true that due to our age, uh, we are not considered at risk and the virus is less effective on us. And then lastly, in terms of epidemiology, it appears that the virus is spreading at a lower rate than the general overall population. However, it is clear and understood that with the recent actions of so many students, that may not be the case for long. And whether due to liability concerns or a genuine desire to keep their students and staff safe, universities are taking aggressive actions to enforce these guidelines. Now, proof that the current positive trends may not uh, maintain at universities comes from what happened at NC State. They have said that the positive trends that they've seen earlier in terms of lower caseloads amongst the population and as well as the lower spread have not maintained and they attribute that due to the actions of students. Not social distancing, not wearing masks, having large gatherings have all contributed to universities having to take decisive action and have also given us data that show that this is not a trend that we must take for granted. We have to continue to follow health guidelines and treat the virus as the threat that it is. So, today we discuss coronavirus in college. We will discuss the new reality that we find ourselves in, a potential vaccine, a juxtaposition between how schools are approaching the pandemic, the value of college in the COVID-19 era, and the efficacy of online teaching. All right, thank you, Aman, for that introduction. So. As we have just outlined, our main talking points today are going to be the different approaches across the country to coronavirus in college, including full online, hybrid, and full in-person, and the associated consequences with each. Whether college is still worth it if classes are online, and if not, will we see less high school graduates opting to attend college in the upcoming years, the efficacy of online teaching, and the situation with vaccine development and how that's going to affect the current climate of coronavirus and how we approach it. So let's start off with different approaches to classes. So the most recognizable and the one that most people are experiencing across the country is the hybrid model. This is what the University of Pittsburgh has employed. And the hybrid model can be very quickly summed up by saying that it offers both in-person and online classes and allows students and faculty to choose what they are most comfortable with. It's the model being employed by 65% of U.S. colleges, according to CNBC. Now, the one problem that I think we've already ran into with the hybrid model is that it's the, the in-person part is, is, is not as certain as we may have thought going in. Yeah, I thought that maybe I was going to be able to go to a class my first day. As a matter of fact, I actually did because a lot of my classes had rooms scheduled mm-hmm. or whatever, and then you show up and then... They, what, they've now changed it to September 14th. You mm-hmm. can't start anyway. So at this point, it basically is just a full online plan. Yeah. yeah. it's. I think we're starting to realize that even if some individuals may be comfortable with attending in-person classes, it, it generally does not, does not 
bode well for the gen- the well-being of the of the population at risk. And and I'll be honest, I think a lot of uh, a lot of kids now that we've been online, the chance that they like opt into in-person classes once we get back to normal feels a little lower at least for some people i know mm-hmm. like for us and where we live in a house and everything now we're comfortable here right. like having to go to in-person class will be very weird and will totally shake up everything so at least for me personally i don't even know if i will opt in to go to any in-person classes um just because it will just change the whole routine and everything so dramatically once it starts and of course you worry about safety terms of that and you would hope that when the university reopens online classes or sorry when they reopen in-person classes hopefully later in the semester that we're able to do it safely and that they feel that cases will not rise with the way that it's being done one thing that i think is very interesting is that the university sees um, going all online for classes opposed to having some in-person classes as a way to mitigate possible coronavirus cases Mm -hmm. and in my opinion i think it's definitely something that will help Right. But I think the bigger problem is really just the actions of students outside of the classroom. Right. Yeah, it's it, it's impossible for a university to completely control the, the the actions that these students take when they're not in academic settings. You can take on you can take classes online, but I would argue that the majority of transmission of coronavirus in college settings would not happen in the classroom regardless due to social distancing measures that would be employed and masks that would be worn. It's really the the partying and the socializing. And I mean, that's not something that you can ever control. I mean, these are 18 to 22 year olds all living in a, in a very close space. It's, it's, it's impossible, right? Yeah. For for an institution to control. We've been asked, we've been asked to act in a, in a way that while it's unfortunate that we can't like a kid, a lot of kids our age, you just, we just can't, like we can't really manage to wrap our minds around how like possibly important it is to act in this way. And like, what we have to give up um, in order to keep this going. And it is unfortunate that we can't, but it's it's almost impossible Like if you to ask college students to do stuff like that just because we can't really handle it, I think. <laughs> and it's kind of how, Garrett, actually, we were talking about this yesterday. It is sad and a little bit pathetic that our age group is not able to really follow such simple guidelines. It's not overall a huge sacrifice. And yet at the same time, it almost... It's surprising that authorities expected the 18 to 22-year-old age group to follow guidelines. Yeah, I think it says a lot about what's expected of our age group, and that appears to be very little. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. But, um, yeah, I, I just I don't see how in-person classes really is going to help lower the cases. Um, personally, I think from a learning perspective, we miss out a lot. You know, even though teachers have done a good job of um, adapting, I think that we miss out a lot by not being there in person. But of course, anything that can be done to mitigate cases is helpful, but I really think the primary issue is that, you know, we have a lot of people just going to large gatherings. Right, and and I think the question of how many how many learning opportunities that we're missing out on in this in this online setting lends itself directly to the question of is college still worth it? And I think this is a question that many of us our age are grappling with and even maybe high schoolers right now who are looking at what college has turned into are thinking, is it really worth all that money and all that effort just to go through a system that is simply not what it used to be a couple of years ago? I mean, for let's if, if we're going to break down the finances, 40 years ago, going to college was a very reliable path towards upward socioeconomic mobility. And today it's just a 
another 21st century luxury for the wealthy, it seems. And when I when I say that, I, I, I really I really am referring to the numbers. I mean, tuition rates have increased by more than 260% over these 40 years. Average costs for four-year private institutions are over $200,000, and average costs for four-year public institutions are over $100,000. At, at the top 80 universities in the U.S., more students are admitted from the top 1% than they are from the bottom 40. And I think that alone really illustrates how much of a luxury this is for those who have the funds to pay for these unbelievably high tuition prices. And the floodgates have been completely open to the international students that are willing to pay full tuition for that American brand. And this is the business model that's been established for the past 40 years. Now, COVID-19 is going to completely shift this current business model. The U.S., which is where everybody was currently flocking to for their education, is now the new epicenter of the pandemic in the entire world, which is leading many students to deferring their enrollment. Foreign students are questioning whether to register at all, given not only the infection, but also uncertainty around visas and work permits. Um, Harvard University has ordered salary cuts in leadership, uh, has ordered hiring freezes, cuts in discretionary spending, and most other universities have taken similar steps. And so far, online classes have been considered a backup plan. But one thing I think we should consider is that, you know, these are uncertain times. These are challenges that we've never had to face before. So maybe we should be open to, to different kinds of solutions. And if that means changing how college looks forever, then that may be a step that we need to take. And one way that we can change that is actually um, making online classes the norm. And I know right off the bat that sounds incredibly scary, but the one pro that this would have is that by creating parallel online, parallel online degrees for core degree programs, colleges could expand enrollment by thousands and drop costs by tens of thousands, which would simultaneously fight the problems that have been entrenched in this in this system for for the past 40 years. But of course, the flip side of this is, one, the student experience would not be nearly as holistic. There's no way you can recreate the student experience of a college student from, say, 10 years ago than in by having them sit in front of a laptop for all of their classes. Um, the existence of the physical campus as a whole would be threatened. We might not need a quad. We may not need pretty buildings and all these beautiful study spaces of everyone's just sitting on their laptop at home and that's that's a really tragic thought i mean college campuses are maybe one of the most romanticized symbols in america and honestly across the world and it would be incredibly sad to see them go yeah i absolutely think you're asking a very important question what is the value of college in our current world i think we all know people who have decided to either take a gap year who have considered it or who have just honestly not come here this semester and you know not enrolled so when you think of college in the current state that we're in in terms of spread of information we are more globalized and connected than we have ever been before it is true that if I wanted to take organic chemistry I could go online and I could acquire all of the knowledge that I need I could structure myself and I could acquire all of that information by myself that was not true in the past all of that information was harder to access. I could go online and I can learn all of Bio 1, Bio 2, Biochemistry, Spanish courses, whatever it is, because there is so much information available online. In addition, the thing that is most important 
that colleges sell and offer and use to recruit are the in-person aspects of the campus and the school. We think about the University of Pittsburgh. We think of the cathedral. We think of Shenley Park. We think of the football games. We think of sports. We think of the beautiful scenery, the buildings, the urban environment, the city of Pittsburgh itself. Um, I really, having been in college, I think, you know, for two years like you guys have, I feel pretty strongly that in talking to other people who go to other schools, that classes are more or less taught with the same level of teaching and quality. If I go take organic chemistry at Michigan, Pitt, Miami, I think I will, generally speaking, get the same quality of teaching and I will learn organic chemistry. So the problem is that when you cut out in person, in a large sense, you cut out the identity of that university. And uh, that definitely serves to Rituan's point in the sense that what is the value of college, at least this semester, when you're cutting out what makes a school the school? Right. And, and the one question I want to open up to the two of you, and a question I think that all college students our age should be considering right now, is how do you think this COVID-19 pandemic is going to affect the value of our degrees? You know, it, it's, it's generally understood, at least right now, when we're still making the switch to online classes and have not firmly established it as the norm yet, that online classes are, are not the same as in-person classes. They're, they're generally less difficult. There's not the same level of interaction with your peers and professors. You, you're not learning the information with the same level of, of immersion that you used to. And how is that going to affect you know, our, our job prospects, our ability to get into graduate schools, our ability to get the careers that we want? What are we spending all this money for? I, uh, I, think, that, I think that it should be relatively okay because employers will be forced to realize that like we had no choice here um and it's literally how everyone our age all of their degrees will be like that so the entire pool of people who you have to choose from now if you think it has compromised the integrity of their degree then that's what you think but you really have no choice if you want to hire somebody who you know, in five years from now is 25. Like, it's going to be everybody. That's just the reality of it. So I think it's going to be, I think they're going to understand that maybe we have missed out on some stuff, but I don't think it's going to hurt us that much purely because it has, it has affected everybody. And it's not, it's something totally out of our control that, and because if it was, if it was something that we could be like, because right now, even if we wanted to be in in-person classes, we couldn't. Like, we have the hybrid model, and they say that they'll open it up once we get past September 14th, and you hope that does happen. Um, but, like I said before, some kids might not even want to do that anymore. They might not feel comfortable, and an employer can't do anything about that. They can't be like, oh, well, if you want to come and make it into our graduate school, then you have to do something that makes you really uncomfortable, which might be go to class in person. So I think, relatively, um, our degrees should still be worth uh, their salt. Agreed. I think that there is the very clear drop in quality of education that we receive, and that affects us ultimately, but I think it's something that, just like Garrett said, everyone's going to have to adjust to and overcome, and when I say everyone, I mean employers as well, because what are you going to do? You can't just not hire an entire age demographic. Um, so it's a really unfortunate truth, but I think, to Garrett's point, we'll have to adapt. Right. I think I think it's just as students we need to be aware that there are are possibly gaps or holes in in our education as compared to those that may come after us and have come before us and we need to actively try to fill those gaps. Yeah. 
So, as we talked about earlier with the coronavirus pandemic, we find ourselves in a very tough situation. It's been very sad, it's been very frustrating, and I think in situations like this, people look for an answer, a save-all, a solution. And I think when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, that comes in the form of a vaccine. I wanted to spend some time diving into the current vaccine situation and discuss what this may mean for us as college students going forward, as well as some ethical questions that it raises. So first and foremost, Operation Warp Speed. That's the sound the operation makes. Thank you, Garrett, and the rest of everyone else. I think we did well. I think we did well as well. So Operation Warp Speed is a gargantuan effort undertaken by the current administration aiming to deliver 300 million doses of a safe, effective vaccine for COVID-19 by January 2021. As part of a broader strategy to accelerate the development, manufacturing, and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. So these would all be grouped under the term countermeasures. Over $2 billion have been given to fund the development of specific vaccine candidates. And while a lot of red tape has been cut by Operation Warp Speed, vaccine developers still must adhere to the following formula. So I'm going to read the general format that all vaccine developers must follow in order to produce a usable and um, efficient vaccine. So we start with the preclinical. The preclinical involves everything prior to human testing. So this could be animal testing. This could be understanding the potential efficacy of a vaccine. This could be understanding the mechanism of the vaccine and how that could be detrimental or helpful. And then once it's approved for testing in humans, you move into phase one. In phase one, you recruit 20 to 80 participants. And over a span of months, you see how the vaccine potentially affects them. Then once you get past that hurdle, you move to phase two, where you have 100 to 300 participants. Finally, you get to phase three, in which you are testing the efficacy of your vaccine on 1,000 to 3,000 participants. And you're also paying very close attention to potential side effects or issues that could arise from giving these people the vaccine. And that's one of the reasons that vaccine research can be so dangerous and so confusing at times because side effects can come out of nowhere. And then once phase three is completed, the drug is submitted for FDA approval. Upon FDA um, submission, there is a long and tedious FDA review to confirm safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. And then last but not least, the drug is officially approved and you move into phase four in which you release it to the general population and that includes samples of over a thousand people. Currently, in Operation Warp Speed, 14 potential vaccine candidates were selected out of 100 potential candidates. And the first one to move into phase three and the one that's receiving a lot of publicity is the Moderna mRNA-1273 vaccine. It was the first vaccine out of all 14 potential candidates in Operation Warp Speed to reach phase three of clinical trials. So therefore, they are one of a handful of potential candidates that is the furthest along in this process, and hopefully the vaccine that we end up using. In terms of mechanism, the mRNA-1273 vaccine is a novel lipid nanoparticle, or LNP, encapsulated mRNA-based vaccine that encodes for a full-length prefusion-stabilized spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, and as some may know, SARS-CoV-2 is just COVID-19. So, 
Essentially, as many people know, vaccines aim to replicate a small dose of the virus. So what the Moderna vaccine does is replicates a small spike of the coronavirus and the body reacts to it, develops antibodies, and hopefully that is successful. As things stand, Moderna is in the first phase of phase three in which they are currently conducting enrollment. So the enrollment for phase three is actually quite large. They are aiming to have 30,000 U.S. volunteers. And as things stand, they have 13,194. One issue that Moderna has had with recruiting subjects to join the study and apply for phase three is recruiting minorities. It's been widely publicized and talked about that minorities are at greater risk for COVID-19. However, Moderna, as things stand, currently only has 18 currently only have 18% of minorities in their volunteer population. I found this point to be interesting because it's something we talked about in prior episodes, right? The fact that minorities in a general sense with good reasoning do not partake as much in research studies like this due to a perceived mistrust of the healthcare system. So I thought that was an interesting point for those of you who have listened to our prior episodes, our two-part series on racial disparities in healthcare. This is in lockstep with what we talked about. And uh, it's a very interesting thing because it's affecting us right now, unfortunately. You know, you'd want a patient population that reflects the current population. And when you don't have that, your results come into question. And then the efficacy of what you've done is the problem. Anyways, Moderna began the study of its vaccine candidate mRNA-1273 in July. And they expect to have complete enrollment to begin phase three by September. So this really shows how rushed everything has been. They found the mRNA and developed it in July, and by September they're going to start phase. They're going to start phase three. So this comes with a series of potential issues that we're going to talk about because, from a general perspective, vaccine approval and testing is a very, very uh, time-sensitive process that, in some cases, can take years. In some cases, there's months. But the red tape is all there for a very specific reason. And one could argue that with Operation Warp Speed, we've really, really rushed through that. And as a matter of fact, there are some vaccines that never have gotten a vaccine just because a not safe candidate, um, just because a safe candidate was unable to be found. This includes Chagas disease, dengue, cytomegalovirus, HIV AIDS, hookworm infection, and malaria. The mechanism through which the volunteers will receive the Moderna vaccine is an intramuscular injection of 0.5 milliliters, and they will receive that on days 1 and 29 through the deltoid muscle. One interesting thing that I found when doing this research is that the initial plans for the Moderna vaccine were to have completed phase 3 testing by November 2021. With Operation Warp Speed, as aforementioned, the goal is to have a vaccine by January 2021. So as you can see, there's been a very, very, very strong acceleration, and understandably so, by the current administration. So I think that's a good general synopsis of the current state of vaccine development that we're in. One thing I wanted to start off by asking you guys is, if an FDA-approved vaccine becomes available, how do you think this will impact colleges, both from a student and administrative standpoint? Well, I think from an administrative standpoint, the first step that would be taken is that students would be required to take, if it was proved 
to be effective and made it to phase four, then absolutely it would be required for students to have that vaccine and provide documentation to the university if they wish to attend classes on campus. And I think if there was a successful vaccine developed that made it to phase four, then we would see an influx of in-person classes because there is that guarantee of immunity amongst those who are in the classroom. I'm not sure that social distancing and masking up would be abolished right away, but absolutely the in-person classroom would return in larger volumes than it is currently being employed in the country. So just to play devil's advocate, and Gary, you can chime chime in on this too. Let's say I'm a concerned parent, and I say, Rituan, look, Operation Warp Speed is great. I'm very happy that we have a vaccine, but how can we really understand long-term effects of the vaccine when these subjects have only had the vaccine administered for and dealt with it for a couple months? Typically, that takes over a year or even years. How do I know this vaccine is safe, and what if I just don't feel comfortable giving it to my kid or letting them get vaccines? I think that uh, I think the school it's very much in the school's power to require students to take the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that could really be argued, but I think that they should be as accommodating as possible to kids who don't want the vaccine or kids whose parents don't want them to take the vaccine. I think they should still offer that option to be a fully online student, um, and. Maybe even, I don't know if they could arrange for there to even be on-campus housing for kids who don't have the vaccine. Um, because I think that that's, I think that's a fair point. I think that a lot of people are going to worry about that because while it's FDA approved and everything, we have no idea what happens like a year down the road just because we don't have that much time, unfortunately. So um, it can be, it can definitely be a valid concern. Um, so universities should be able to both put in the into place the stipulation that you have to have the vaccine to attend in-person classes but also try their best to provide for the kids who can't get it or don't want it or something like that yeah it's a it's an interesting point you bring up because i i was thinking when you were when you were talking about when they truncated that timeline from november 2021 to january 2021 obviously that that shorter timeline fits the situation currently but i wonder if that's going to affect the efficacy of the vaccine and maybe even the reliability of the data. So I feel like they should definitely run parallel studies mm-hmm. and have a group that is extended to November 2021 have the whole original plan in place and maybe compare and see if see if there's any difference in the efficacy of the two vaccines because if it turns out that there is any adverse side effects with the truncated version that could have been avoided had we just taken our time, maybe that's something we'll regret down the line. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly understandable that certain parents might be against administering that vaccine and letting their kids be on campus. And I do agree with Garrett that that online, that online class format should stay an option and that school should be accommodating of those students. Yeah, I think those are all great points. In an ideal world, I think what happens is within the first couple of months of vaccine availability, a large section of the population feels comfortable receiving it and getting vaccines. And then hopefully, and this is the thing that so many people bring up even with people who are not at risk getting coronavirus and developing antibodies hopefully a herd immunity is able to be developed in which we can maybe phase in or not um, back into normal life but where it's just safer for people who are at risk because i mean that is the biggest concern with any virus or any disease right who is the at-risk population how do we protect them and then you go from there i think and this brings us to the next question 
um, that it'll be much more complicated. So the second question I had for you guys in terms of the vaccine is, will a vaccine, and let's say it is the Moderna vaccine, let's say Operation Warp Speed does work, and by January 2021, we have a vaccine that we deem to be safe. Will this be the fix-all that we also desire? I I don't really know because we... Uh... You know, we worked on a, we tried to work on a vaccine for some of those diseases that you talked about before, uh, like HIV and malaria and stuff. And then they just decided that it couldn't be done. And now, now we just live with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I understand like the transmission is different. Like that's the big thing with COVID is that it can be transmitted, um, you know, via the air and stuff like that. And malaria, you have to get um, bit by a mosquito. And HIV is through blood, so it's a lot less common, the transmission, but we decided that we're going to have to live life like this. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> there's going to be more diseases, too. Probably worse ones. There were worse ones before, and people, and a lot of them weren't ever really fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it can really help. It can help a lot, of course. Um, but will this be the big fix-all? I I really don't know because, I mean, there will just be another disease somewhere down the road and we'll have to do this all again. So hopefully it isn't transmitted in the same way that COVID is because that's really the big thing here. But I, it is it is interesting. Yeah, I think I think the one thing we all have to come, term, come to terms with is that coronavirus has changed the world forever. You know, there's a flu vaccine that we're advised to get once a year whenever it's flu season we take different measures you know if we're sick Mm -hmm. we stay at home we like to wipe down surfaces we try to not be in public and i feel like coronavirus is just going to amplify that regardless of whether there's a vaccine or not we may see people with masks around more often we may see online options or full online requirements for certain things that had in-person options before and vaccines are going to be required for a lot of activities that weren't that that we could we could do without any worry before so so the thing is, it'll, it'll, it'll change the current situation of emergency into one that resembles the normalcy that we had before, but will things be completely the same as they used to be? No. And we have to come to terms with that. I think that's a really, really strong point. Another question I had for you guys is, and this is where some of the bioethics comes into it. I know Melinda Gates said earlier, and she got some flack for this from different groups. That African Americans should be the first to receive the potential vaccine because they are, if not the, one of the most affected populations. Who do you guys, and again, this is a matter of opinion based on our own limited public health opinions, who should get the potential safe vaccine first? Well, my first instinct when seeing that question is that the at-risk population should get it first because, quite simply, they're the ones who could be affected by the virus the most. So mm-hmm. older populations, those with pre-existing conditions, those who can suffer the most from the virus, um, I think they're the ones who should get it first. But again, as you said, I haven't analyzed the data. This isn't my job. But that's just my first instinct when I see this. I agree. I agree with you. I think, honestly, 
Um, at least for me personally, if I were one of the first ones to get the vaccine, I would think that was a really stupid thing to do. Right. You know, like I would be like, don't like literally give it to somebody else because right now, like I know I'm in college and maybe it's now required, but I'll wait. It's fine because it doesn't make any sense to give it to me. Right. right you'll stay in your pod and you'll wait. Until yeah. It. So, yeah, I agree with Retwan. I think the at-risk population, so I don't think Melinda Gates is really wrong in saying that because the people who are being the most affected should be the people who get it first. My hope, and we've talked about this in prior episodes, is that we don't have a situation where there is a financial component to it. In other words, we talked about this in previous in a previous episode, how uh, like Tom Hanks and um, and Rita Wilson, Idris Elba, they were getting tested and you know getting positive results or not um, very quickly when it seemed like other people with less resources could not. And that's not to call out those specific people. Not like they'll believe. Not like they'll be listening. But <laughs> you know, there's always been a financial aspect to healthcare. People who have more money, they just naturally have more resources. They have better healthcare, and they have better access to things like a vaccine. So I hope and I pray that that same pattern that always always repeats it does not repeat itself here. I really hope that. And I don't know what's there to stop it. Really, I don't know what litigation or policy has that that's changed to really prevent this from happening i think if people have the means and the resources and they're honestly wealthier they probably will get vaccines first but i hope and i wish that's not how it happens hopefully in 2021 as you guys said i hope older people i hope minority populations i hope those are the ones that receive this vaccine worth or first because that ultimately will help all of us anyways right it's a good thing for everyone and it probably is morally the way things should go now, I think we are running out of time here. I had one last question for you guys, just because we've been talking about the coronavirus for a long time. I just wrote this down as we were you know, recording, as a matter of fact. As Garrett said, we were due for... You said this was due for this. We were due for this to happen. Yeah, and we're, it'll happen again. Yeah, so. exactly. There's, there's a pattern, right? Epidemics, they come and go, and some become pandemics, unfortunately. The human population is vulnerable when it comes to the spread of viral diseases. I would argue that in our lifetimes and in most people's lifetimes, this has been the most the world has been affected by it. And as we've seen with large world events, such as even the world wars, there is always significant change after significant damage has been done in response so that something like this never happens again. Same thing with the housing crisis when the economy crashed almost a decade ago, right? Or over a decade ago. So my question to you guys is how should the world change permanently going forward after the COVID-19 pandemic? It's quite a loaded question. So for me, at least what I what I hope and what I think would be the most effective would be people, maybe this will help people think about how healthy they are before they get sick, right? The biggest thing with COVID is these pre-existing conditions and some of them are preventable. Like lung disease is just don't smoke a ton um and stuff like that so i think maybe it will make people take a step back and look at themselves and be like what's something that i could do and maybe live a little healthier of a lifestyle so that next time this pandemic comes around i'm not part of that at-risk population now of course some of the some of the things that make you at risk are outside of your control and that's perfectly understandable but some of the things are within your control so i think that what this will do is make a lot of people look at those things that are in their control and like see what they can do about them. That's what I hope, at least. 
I absolutely agree. I think I think the coronavirus pandemic is certainly going to be a call to action to stay fit and and to maintain that and incorporate fitness as part of a lifestyle. Um, I also think that there will be a lot of changes in just the way the public is is run. And when I say that, I mean maybe maybe there won't be doors with handles that we have to grab in certain places right maybe we'll see a lot more automatic doors maybe we'll see a lot of events where masks are required um hand sanitizer will will be available at every corner things like that there will definitely be small changes throughout our cities and our towns and public places in general that are going to be put in place to generally put obstacles in the way of something like this happening again and that will be our new norm, and that will be how the world changes as a result of this. For me, just at a bare minimum, I hope that we eliminate some of the common touch points that viruses come from. So, for example, if we can make as many doors as possible touch-sensitive, faucets, um, even you know, get in the habit of regularly cleaning desks and chairs after we use them, or maybe something automatic that does that, or easier hand sanitizer access, I think that would go a long way to, even with the common influenza uh, vaccine that we all, we all have to get each year, that would go a long way towards really helping with some of the common endemic viruses that we have to deal with. I'm currently reading a book by Atul Gawande called Better. For those of you who know me, who are listening, you know that I don't read often. Um, and so this is actually a really good book. It's the first book that I've really sat down and read in a really long time. And one of the things he talks about is just discipline. Discipline for the things that seem so simple but are so hard to do. So I was telling Ritwan about this, I think, a couple days ago, and I never got to finish telling him about this. So now Ritwan will actually get to hear me finish this out. We live right across the street from the Pittsburgh VA hospital where this study was actually done. They were trying to understand how to limit the spread of infectious disease amongst hospitals. And amidst hospitals and within patients, you're dealing with a bunch of sick people, you're dealing with a lot of staff and employees who are interacting with all these sick people and then interacting with other sick people in the hospital. So one thing that was really pointed out is that the more hand washing was emphasized, no matter how many times they tried to do different practices, whether they found new drugs, new cures for and treatments for things like MRSA, for very resistant bacteria, the thing that it always came down to is discipline and essentially the rigor and routine of washing your hands and practicing you know, things like social distancing, staying away from sick people, wearing a mask. And maybe if we could apply that more strictly going forward, I think it would really behoove us um, in the future. All right, sounds good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, we hope that everyone stays safe during this really trying time. Listen to what your colleges have to say about it um, and really follow those guidelines because that's what's going to ensure that everybody stays safe, not only yourself, but... Um, all those people who are around you and important to you, and it'll ensure that we can maybe stay on campus for an entire safe and healthy semester. 